0: Welcome to another episode of Men's Bible Study. Pastor John Mark Caton joins us again to continue our series, I Fix Stuff. What I break, he fixes. Today, John Mark will talk about something I'm sure that a lot of us have questioned, which is, why did the Jews reject Jesus? Now, let's hear from John Mark. Uh, Now, Justin, you are going to read your, um, uh, your poem next week, aren't you? are you? All right. He wrote a solid poem about the senior staff that uh, I think he needs to share with all of y'all uh, before the end of the year, um, because that'll be the last time y'all see him. <laughs> but anyway, uh, good seeing you guys today. And as we uh, journey towards uh, Christmas, I thought I'd just uh, uh, pause and um, I began to think, well, what do I want to teach these guys as we come to the end of the year? Certainly, I always teach about Christmas this time of the year. I I was thinking Messianic prophecies and uh, a lot of the Old Testament things pointing to Jesus. And as I thought about praying praying through that, what I I share, what I teach, and and then I decided, you know, the bigger question is for us, all right, we look at Christ as um, one who is promised of God man, all the way back from Genesis 3. I was reading Genesis 3, the seed of woman. I mean, it, it was just so clear. And you're always looking through the Old Testament scriptures that are pointing to Jesus. And sure enough, Jesus shows up as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, of all the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so I thought about, well, I want to talk to you about, man, I'm just going to show you how Jesus fulfills all the sacrifices in the Old, in the old Testament. And then I, then I thought, well, now let's do this. I, I haven't done this in a while, let me show you how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the festivals. And so I kind of began to run down that that path. I said, you know, I've done that before. And then I thought, you know, why don't we do this? Why don't we stop and ask the question, why did the Jews reject Jesus? Because it seems so clear to us when we look back as as those who are called Christians, uh, that you look back from the beginning of time and the promises of God and the way God led the children of Israel uh, and the way God promised them, instituting the sacrificial system, giving them the Ten Commandments uh, that they failed before they even got the Ten Commandments. They down there, they built a calf to remind them all the way through that you are sinful and I am holy. And all through the sacrificial system, all through the tabernacle, anything and everything, it was always, always pointed to there needs to be a sacrifice for your sin. And they all understood it. God gave them a priestly system. They reminded them there needs to be a mediator between you and God. All the way so much so that, that, that not only are there priests, but there's got to be a high priest that really stands between you and God. And and everything they said. And then you go into the New Testament and John the Baptist looks up at Jesus that day and says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That should have been the mic drop moment. But instead we see the Jews rejected Jesus. And I thought I'd just ask the question, why in the world did the Jews reject Jesus? And give you a couple of thoughts today. But before I even do, um, anybody in here of, of Jewish background, anybody in okay, got, if you look around um, the categories of Jewish people that you see today, uh, you're, you really find them broken down in one of a couple of categories. One's most recognizable to you. Um, there are Jews that are called Jewish people that live today. Are call, some are called Reformed Jews, Reformed Jews. Uh, this started back in the 1800s in uh, Germany and Europe. And if you think of a Reformed Jew, they're certainly in America, or they're in Europe, uh, Reformed Jews of a category of Jews, that would probably be the most liberal Jews, okay? They kind of rejected a lot of the Jewish tradition. Uh, Jewish tradition is you separate uh, men and women in worship, you only pray in uh, Hebrew prayers and a lot of the, the kosher eating habits and stuff like that. Reformed Christians uh, back in the 1800s kind of said, you know, we need to do away with all that. It's open for cultural interpretation and where we live and all of those kind of things. So that'd be one group that you would see. And they're not gonna be ones that go around that you just notice if you know they're a Jew, you look at them and you say they're reformed. They're liberal, that's not what you're gonna say. Then the next wing of that would be the ones that are most recognizable to us. They are called Orthodox Jews, Orthodox Jews. Uh, Orthodox Jews were really um, kind of a reaction to the reformed Jews, the, the, the liberal Jews. They kind of said, you know what? You've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And so Orthodox Jews really went down and kind of doubled down, if you want to put it that way, uh, on what would be referred to as rabbinic tradition. You remember going all the way back to Jesus' days that you had different rabbis that people would follow and you would hear a rabbi teach and you say, I wanna follow that rabbi, I wanna listen to that rabbi. And and he would give some interpretations. Everybody had the same amount of scripture. uh, But oftentimes a rabbi would say, well, here's how far that command goes, right? That you can do this and you can't do this and uh, you can say this, but you can't do this. And then one rabbi would say, hey, when it comes to the Sabbath, you can't do anything. And then another, another rabbi, by the way, this is being facetious, so another rabbi says, you can't do anything but go fishing or hunting when hunting season's over, right? And then all the men said, we want to follow that rabbi. Uh, so the Orthodox Jews, if you want to think of them, they would be a much more conservative wing, all right? So you have the Reform that are, that are, that are the liberal wing, you have the Orthodox Jews that are, that are, uh, uh, that are more, most conservative wing. When we went to Israel a couple of weeks ago, uh, there um, it's a couple of months back now, and had a great travel. We were always talking to Pilar, uh, who was our uh, who was our tour guide, and you would see lots of categories and groups of Orthodox Jews. And so, for me, and probably for most of us Americans, they all kind of look the same. Really, I mean, they did, because they had the same hat, all wore black, all wore white. But she, being a Jew, she could tell you, no, they're from this group, and they're from this group. And a lot of it had to do, and I don't get all of this, and I need to learn more and study more about it, about tassels that they wore and different things that they wore. And, and so she would say, no, no, there are many different Orthodox Jews, and they might follow this guy, and they might follow this guy. But very strict traditions. Boy, how they interact with each other and what they do. And every day the men, the ladies might go to work, uh, the men go and study the Torah. And that sounded like a good gig. The women working and us just kind of kicking back and studying the Torah and fishing. Uh, but don't take your wife, you know, don't go and say, hey, here's what the pastor said. My job is to read the Bible. Your job is to go work. So uh, uh, that will get us all in trouble. But. So the Orthodox, and interestingly enough, our, uh, if I remember correctly, our tour guide said, because there were Orthodox Jews all over Israel, uh, but our tour guide said there are actually more Orthodox Jews in New York City than there are in all of Israel. And I just thought that was shocking to me. So if you think of Reformed Jews being the most liberal uh, Jews and then Orthodox Jews were a reaction to that, they said, no, we are, we are going to stand out. And the way we worship, and the way we dress, and the way we study the Torah, and all our prayers are going to be in Hebrew. And we are going to go back to, uh, in the Jewish tradition of dividing men and women uh, by gender, in worship, kosher, dietary laws. So you had those two reactions. And then what happens is, coming right down the middle of that, is almost a reaction to those two reactions. You have what we're referred to as a third category of Jews that, that, that are probably the most common type of Jew I believe, that you will find in America. They're just called conservative Jews. They're they're not they're not the liberal reformed Jews. Interestingly, you, you would think when we hear word reformed, we think that's probably conservative. That's probably the most liberal. Uh, Orthodox is the most conservative. Then you have this 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 line down the middle, and by the way, I'm I'm overgeneralizing. Just want you to know as you as you journey through your day, boy, what you are. Probably the conservative Jew is what you'll see, what you'll meet a lot here in the United States probably the, probably the largest segment in the United States. They're not as liberal as the reformed. They're not as conservative as the orthodox. They hold on to some of the basic dietary laws, some of the ways they don't wear they don't wear the hat, they may not uh, abide by the Sabbath the same way the orthodox Jews do. Where man, they shut it down when the when the sun goes down and they don't do it. They're somewhere in the middle. Interestingly enough, uh, they, they don't necessarily have uh, the high view, a high view of Scripture in this is what it says. They still place a high, high value on how Scripture is interpreted, not what it says. And so then there's a fourth category of Jew that you've probably heard of called a Messianic Jew. How many of you have heard of Messianic Jew? Very large, fast-growing segment of Jews. And a Messianic Jew, some, I hear some people say, well, they're just Christians, right? Yes, but, in fact, our two, uh, our two tour guides uh, in Israel were both Messianic Jews. That Pilar ha- has, been, uh, has been a tour guide, I think she said 21 years or something like that, and she started off as an unbeliever just as a Jew. And she began to teach and talk and talk with all these churches and ministers and say, and she used to say, this is what you believe and this is what you believe and this is what your Bible says happened here and this is what happened here. And through the years, uh, she said, uh, no one really led me to the Lord. I preached to myself. Yeah. And so now she's a Messianic Jew. She began to say, I- I'm pretty sure I now believe that because she said I would go study more and more and more in the truth of what I saw in my scriptures and than the New Testament scriptures. It wasn't just me being a tour guide anymore. It was me realizing, man, this is the fulfillment of the prophecies found in the Old Testament. And so you will run into a, a Messianic Jew is not just a Christian, I want you to know, they are a Christian, but they could be a Christian that still abides by some of the Old Testament uh, dietary laws. Does that make sense? Uh, they still, when they go into worship, they could they could still say prayer prayers in Hebrew. And so they yes, they are a believer. They believe absolutely that Jesus is their Messiah. They have accept they are Jews who have accepted the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. But they hold on to some of their Jewish traditions. And so, if you think of the large categories, Reformed would be the most liberal. Orthodox would be the most conservative and easily identifiable. Then you've got the conservatives in the middle, and then probably somewhere on the top is a Messianic Jew, one who has come to look at the Old Testament, that was pointing towards a coming Messiah, and says, I no longer reject Jesus as the Messiah, I believe He is in fact the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. So then the question becomes, that's today. In that day, why did they reject Jesus? Because for me, I will just tell you, it seems so clear when you look at some of the Old Testament prophecies about when Jesus was going to be born, or the Messiah. Let's not even call him Jesus, the Messiah was going to be born. Boy, it, 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 pretty, it pretty much identifies a, a, a specific time, where Jesus was born. Boy, the Old Testament kind of points to a specific place, right? Um, man, what kind of birth you would have. Kind of tells us uh, what kind of life he would live. Kind of tells us the Old Testament even prophesies messianic prophecies. And by the way, if you, if you look, even between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, there are some books, some Hebrew scriptures that they wrote called the Talmud and other things. So by the time the Old Testament was written and the New Testament, uh, Old Testament was done, New Testament written in the Talmud were these other rabbinic teachings that they would identify certain scriptures that you and I would call Messianic prophecies. They identified them as the Messianic prophecies. So they knew this is going to be a prophecy about a coming Messiah that will help us identify the coming Messiah. So they're sitting there going, they were acknowledged that this is a, a messianic prophecy that this one talks about Jesus, where he's going to be born, how he's going to be born. Man, the prophecies like man, he's going to be betrayed by a friend for a certain amount of money. How many of you think it would be in pretty impressive if I called out one of you guys right now and said, hey, you know, before noon today, someone you're going to be somewhere, somehow, way, and uh, someone's going to walk up and give you 15 cents, and it's going to be in a dime and five pennies. And all of a sudden, sometime between now and noon, you walked in somewhere, and someone said, I don't know why I'm supposed to do this, but here's a dime and five pennies. You would think two things. One, my pastor's a prophet, and he's a cheap one. Right? How many of you would think both of those at the same time? Yeah, you would say we didn't know the church. I love the prophecy, but we need to be bumping up just a little bit. Uh, I would still expect you to tithe, by the way. Um, but that'd be pretty impressive. But what what if several hundred years ago you were reading your grandpa's diary or your great 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 grandpa's diary? And he says, hey, by the way, on this date, what's the date? Sometime between this and this, someone's going to walk up and hand you 15 cents. And it's going to be a dime and it's going to be five pennies. And back when your grandpa wrote that, they didn't even have dimes or five pennies. You would think, "Uh, that's pretty impressive. If you look in 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 the Jewish Old Testament, that's what you see. So for us, it's easy to look back and kind of go back and say, we understand. Even if you look in the Talmud and other writings, their writings said these are certain Messianic prophecies. Then you say, well, why did the Jews reject Jesus? Not all of them. Because if you look at, uh, by the way, if you look at uh, the New Testament church in Acts chapter 2, you know what they were? They were Messianic Jews. That, that little sect of Judaism was called Messianic Jews. We called it the church. It later became, you go look in the book of Acts, they were first called Christians or the first called the church. They were Messianic Jews. They were Jews that still had that dietary law and what were they trying to figure out? What, what is so much of the New Testament about? Whether it's Galatians or Philippians or First Corinthians, what was it about? How do we mingle our Jewish identity and our dietary laws and our worship practices, how do we mingle it with these Gentiles, right? Do they need to be more Jewish or do we, do we need to be more Gentile or how can we hold on to both of our traditions and still honor the one true God? That's a hard thing. How many of you think that's a hard thing? Let me tell you what, how many of you know people disagree about things in a church, even our church? I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of music we sing, how loud it is, what we do, what we don't do. I mean, we get, we get love emails, I send them to Justin, every week, about somebody that doesn't like something about the church. And I'm like, I don't understand that, we're a perfect church, at least the pastor is. I said, I preach to imperfect people, but I'm a perfect pastor. No, the reality of it is, think of all the disagreements we have. Now take really hard traditions, right? Hard traditions, Jewish traditions, man, some faithful traditions. And, and as Pilar and Amit was our, was our second tour guide, amazing guy, still serves in the Israeli army. And he was, they were just pouring things out for us that I had heard in bits and pieces. And I'm like, man, I cannot imagine trying to merge those two cultures in that early church. It would have been hard. Because Jews were taught to don't be with Gentiles. They are completely unclean. And then all of a sudden, two of them are saved and you're sitting at the same table. You got two Jews, got two Gentiles, and you're sitting there going, man, we need the Spirit of God more than anything. And so that's kind of an interesting thought if we put ourselves back there. So why in the world did the Jews reject Jesus? Let me give you a couple of thoughts. But first, I want to remind you, and I'm going to talk more about this on Sunday. The story starts off pretty well, doesn't it? If you go to Luke chapter 2, we've been working through Luke chapter 2. I'm going to pick it up and read more of Luke chapter 2 this weekend. When Jesus is dedicated at the temple, we'll put it up on the screen for you. And I'm not going to go into this because I'm going to expand on it on Sunday. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, the story starts out pretty good. All right. So now there's a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. Everybody say Simeon. You're going to hear more about him on Sunday. uh, Who was a righteous and devout man. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was on him. It was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. It says, moved by the Spirit. He went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child Jesus uh, uh, to do for him the custom of the law that the law required, Simeon took him in his arms praising God saying sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for the eyes have seen your salvation, eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. How many of you say that's a pretty good start, right? He's eight days old. He shows up in church. Simeon, the righteous, devout man who had been promised that, listen, you won't die until you see this Messiah, this Christ child, they show up. Everybody knows Simeon. He's a righteous dude. He's been told by the spirit that you're not going to die until the Messiah shows up. He takes the child and says, Sovereign Lord, here he is. But even as you look at it, it says, he says, what about that? He says, he will be a light of re- revelation, verse 32, to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Notice those two things right there at the end. He's going to be a light for the Gentiles and a glory for your people. How many of you would say, started pretty well? We're eight days in. And the preacher at the temple said, this is the dude. And You know what? Not only did this story start pretty well, let me just put it to you this way. It almost ended well. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Fast forward all through Jesus' life, all the miracles have been done. Now he's coming into Jerusalem. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 21. So the story almost ends well. Jesus has performed many signs and many miracles. Many followers have begun to follow. He's fed 5,000. They've heard about it. There's not a place in all of Israel. Up in Galilee, up in Judah, uh, or down in Judea, anywhere in between, in the Samaritan Valley in between, where he, he ministered to the woman at the well and all of those other places. All of Israel knows about Jesus. And this story almost ends well. Matthew 21, here it is. He says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will come upon a man and he will have a donkey uh, uh, tied there uh, with with her colt by her. This is untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This is exactly what took place to fulfill what was spoken through the Old Testament prophet. There it is. And prophecy about where he will go and how how he's gonna enter into uh, Jerusalem. It's all there in the Old Testament. Verse five. Say to the the daughter of Zion, your king, uh, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. The disciples then went and did what Jesus had instructed them to do. They brought the donkey and the colt, tied him in his place, and laid their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And then look at what it says in verse 8. A very large crowd. This, this story almost ends well. So here's what's happened. He's totally fulfilling fulfilling the prophet. A very very large crowd uh, spread their cloaks on the road and while others laid branches and palm trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went on ahead of them and um, uh, those followed, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked him, who is this? And what was their response? He's the Christ, he's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting on. Man, the story starts so well, the story almost ends well, what happened? Well, it wasn't long after this that uh, Jesus began to fail in their eyes. See, they had some expectations, they had built some expectations about what the Messiah would do and what he would be like And Jesus didn't meet those expectations. See, it didn't matter what their scripture said. And guys, I I just want to encourage you with this. That it's not just the Jews over 2,000 years ago that do the same thing today. They come with certain expectations of God. And if God doesn't meet your expectations or do what you want, that we also have a tendency to turn and reject God. Don't we do the same thing? See, by the time Jesus showed up, they had really four expectations of what the Messiah would do. Now, they were, they were comfortable with him forgiving them of their sins. But there were certain things that they wanted him to do. And I just kind of began to look through and I said, first of all, I, I think the first thing they wanted Jesus to do, and he failed at this, is the religious leaders of the day had become so corrupt that they truly believed that their Messiah was going to come and be one of them and he was gonna affirm what they were teaching instead of rejecting what they were teaching. And so in some respects, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, even the Essenes, and uh, uh, the Sanhedrin, all of those, they had the religious power. They, they had cut a deal with Rome and said, listen, man, we'll just hold these people under control. And what Jesus constantly do, did is he came in and just began to beat on them a little bit, right? He began to say, You know, you you talk about loving people. You talk about caring for people. But you are all talk. How many remember Jesus saying that over and over to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Because you're all talk. You go look at Matthew 23. You know what the first word word of most of those verses are in Matthew chapter 23 about the religious leaders of the day? It's a three-letter word called woe. You want to know what that woe means? It means woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because... Woe to you... I mean, Jesus just lighting them up. Remember I talked to you Sunday about a guy named Amos? Remember hundreds of years before Christ that the whole religious and political system, the, the, the schools of the prophets of the Old Testament where you would have these prophets literally, it would be like seminaries of their day. They would, they would train prophets and how to, how to speak God's word and how to share the Torah, how to go into a village and how to be a prophet for a village. They had gotten so corrupt, they cared more and more about what they said. So, what did God do? God called a not so son of a prophet who was a shepherd. How many of you were in church Sunday? If you weren't in church Sunday, you missed something important. It was all the way back then that God began to see that the religious leadership had not stayed poor, uh, pure and instead had been getting to go their own way. So he called Amos the prophet. He said, I'm gonna get this shepherd. He's not practiced at preaching. He doesn't know how to totally interpret God's will, but if he'll listen to me and speak to the people, I'll bless him and that's what he does with Amos. So fast forward a couple of hundred years, it's more corrupt. And so what they thought is that the Messiah would come in, he would be one of them. He would come in and affirm the the religious leadership and potential that they had and affirm them. And Jesus didn't. That's one. He rejected their religious leadership, not their religion. There is a difference. The religious leadership of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and that Sanhedrin, Jesus rejected it. And he showed them what true religion was all about. Here, here's the second reason I think they rejected him is because they wanted the Messiah to come, in, come up and set up, come in and set up a new kingdom where they would be the rulers, and not the Romans. They wanted him to show up, gather them all around and say, "Hey, this Rome thing is about to be over, and we're going to be in charge." See, that's what they were wanting. See, they, the religious leadership had made a deal with Rome, but the only reason why they made a deal with Rome, they didn't love Rome, how many of you know that? They loved power. They didn't have the power to rule at all, so they had to cut a deal with Rome. So what they wanted Jesus to do, come in and said, hey boys, let's all meet in the house right over here. We're gonna, we're gonna begin to plan how we seize control back of our land, of Jerusalem, and we're gonna set back up the city of David. Even his disciples thought that's who Jesus was about. Did you know that? Some of his disciples that uh, I'll give you an example. Go to Mark chapter 10. You'll remember this story. This is exactly what they thought. Now, James and John had been following Jesus for a while, and they start talking about Jesus' kingdom. And they're referring to an earthly kingdom of the Messiah, not a heavenly kingdom of Messiah. And so notice what they said. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee came to him and said, teacher, they said, uh, uh, and and he said, teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever, whatever we ask. By the way, that's an incredible way to ask it. Uh, What do you, my kids do that to me all the time. So what do you want me to do? He asked. He says, they replied, I got an idea. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory and notice what jesus says he says you don't know what you're asking what were they thinking all right we know at some point you're going to have this big reveal of how we're going to take back jerusalem and so when it happens i know all of us disciples are going to have a place but but we're kind of the sons of thunder and so that'd be really cool for you as the Messiah to surround yourself with the sons of thunder. Let, let one of us be on your right hand, one of us be on. What are they talking about? They're not talking about the heavenly kingdom. They're, they're talking about his glory because as you talk, look in the Old Testament scriptures, talk about the, the glory of the Messiah, the glory of the Messiah, the glory of the Messiah, ultimately the glory of Jesus in heaven. But these guys, even his followers, say, man, we, are, we, 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 we want to be part of it right here. And notice what Jesus said in verse 38. He says, you guys, uh, newsflash, uh, you really don't know what you're asking. Because my kingdom is going to start when I'm crucified with a thief on my right and a thief on my left. So be careful what you ask for. He says, that's where my kingdom starts. And, and so as you just continue to read on, we can, we. can and he says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Notice what they said, verse 39. We can. They answered. Jesus said to them, uh, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I baptize you with. But sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom he ha- it has been prepared. Now listen to this, verse 40, 41. It says, when they heard, heard about this, they became indignant when the others heard about it, the other 10, so right there in front of the disciples, the other 10 heard about it, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, listen, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of Gentiles, Lord and over them, talking about the earthly kingdom, and their high, high officials exercise authority on them. Not so with you instead whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant and whoever wants to be the first must be slave to all and then I love this verse, verse 45 for even the son of man talking about himself, did not come to be served but to serve, listen to this and to give his life as a ransom for all he says newsflash my kingdom is not about this earth now you look at the end times, go read the Revelation, it'll show up. With a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21, if you want to know where you can read that. But listen, his first kingdom started by be- with being a, a thief, crucified on his left and on his right. So here's the third thought. So one, they wanted him to set up his own kingdom. Number two, wanted to deliver. Uh, they didn't understand the kind of uh, kingdom he was going to set up. But number three, just wanted to deliver him from Roman rule. They were sick of it. I won't spend much time here because we've got to hurry, but hey, remember he just one time they said, hey, what about these, this whole tax situation? Can we just stop paying taxes? Uh, I mean, who hasn't asked that question, right? And he said, render unto Caesar, now, which is Caesar's. Let me give you the last idea. And this is a big one. By the time of Jesus, they had forgotten and relegated the Messianic prophecies that talked about a suffering Messiah to a lower level, they had been so many, been through so many regime changes, Babylon, the splitting of Israel, that they wanted that unified city of David. They wanted their country back together. That they relegated some of the Messianic prophecies that talked about a suffering servant and a suffering Messiah. They re- relegated those to the bottom rung and they forgot about prophecies. And This is where you and I, we cannot forget about God's Word. Isaiah 53. Now tell me if this doesn't describe Christ. Now here's the deal, uh, when, when I preach, how many of you love it when I preach parts of Jeremiah? Just parts the parts where I talk about God has a plan for you to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. How many of you love that verse? If you don't raise your hand, you are a liar. (laughs) How many of you know the verses before and the verses after says God has a plan right after you are beaten until you're half dead? right after the world spits on you and you go through hardship and difficulty, right after you almost lose everything, don't ever forget, I still have a plan for you. How many of us would love to skip those earlier verses and just let's go to the prosperity and hope and future part, right? So we, don't, don't act, let's don't act like, well, how could the Jews, they wanted a kingdom. They wanted their power. They wanted the city of David. They wanted the temple back, right? That's what what we want. Man, what do we want? We want, hey, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you and you do that and it gets worse. You're like, where's God? We are prone to do the same things. Let's don't ask like they're doing anything that we don't do also. And so let's look at this. Isaiah 53 says, surely you took our pain and our suffering. Now, by the way, the Talmud much of the Hebrew writing that happened and took place, the development, the interpretation of the Old Testament that took place between uh, the time Malachi was closed and the time Jesus showed up, these all the Talmud. Go read it. Go look at it. These were all called messianic prophecies. But in the minds of the religious leaders, they had become minor and not major. The ones about restoring the kingdom and restoring the city of David, does that make sense? Those are what had become powerful. So when Jesus shows up, says, I came to to seek and save those who are lost. I'm going to talk to the Samaritans. I'm I'm not going to mind when this this, this prostitute is caught in adultery. I'm not going to stone her. That's not what they wanted. So here it is. He says, they took to, and he bore our pain and our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by men, afflicted. Look at, look at the next verse, verse five. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we were healed. Man, that sounds like this Messiah. How many of you know, that sounds like this Messiah is going through something for us, Right. Then if you jump down the next verse, we all like sheep have gone astray, each into our own way. And the Lord has chosen to lay upon him the iniquity of us all. How does that, what does that mean? Verse seven, he was oppressed and afflicted. This is talking about the Messiah. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter How many of you know, I mean, even though any shepherds in here, nobody, how many of you know, even if you're not a shepherd, when you lead a lamb to slaughter, it doesn't turn out well for the lamb. How many of you know that? We all got that tapped in, right? But here it is in in something they would refer to. This is a messianic Psalm, a suffering servant. I mean, a a messianic prophecy, a suffering servant prophecy. Then as you read on, and a sheep before a shearer is silent. So he did not even open his mouth. They knew this was about the coming Messiah. Let me give you another one. Go to Psalm 22, and this is where we're going to close, guys, man. And, and if you haven't read Psalm 22 lately, man, long before crucifixion was ever even a punishment of people, you think I've, Isaiah 53 talks about crucifixion. Look at, look at this one. Psalm 22, verse 1, Messianic prophecy talking about a suffering servant. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, somebody tell me where we've heard that before. On the cross. There we go. On the cross. One, one of Christ, seven cries from the cross. It wasn't just some, a lot of people look at the interpretive value of, uh, of what, what does that mean? The, was the Trinity ripped apart in that moment? Did Jesus go to hell for those couple of days? Theologically, let me tell you what Jesus was doing. He wasn't giving us a theological statement. He was giving us a directional statement. Because when he quoted the first verse of Psalm 22, every Jew around knew what he was talking about. I don't believe he was talking about the Trinity there. I don't believe he was talking about where he's going to spend the next couple of days. He was saying, y'all know the scripture about the Messiah. Now I can give you the theological perspective of what what took place and what didn't take place, but let me ask you a question. If I gave you a direction, if I said go read this and see if this doesn't apply to me today, tell me if this sounds a little bit, I won't read it all, uh, about a crucifixion. And by the way, Talmud said this was a Messianic prophecy about a suffering servant. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries and anguish. Jump down to verse 6. But I am a worm and I am not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Look at verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Jump down to verse 13. Roaring lions that tear their prey open, their mouths are wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. Look at verse 15. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Look at verse 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Hmm. Does this sound like exactly what took place at Jesus' crucifixion? And if hundreds of years before, everyone said Psalm 22 is a messianic prophecy about the Messiah who would suffer for the sins of the world. They pierced my hands and my feet. Look at verse 17. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat. What do they do when they crucify? They strip you naked. They pierce you. They hang you. There is no modesty. Everybody can see every inch and ounce of your skin, your flesh, and your bones. Uh-oh, it doesn't stop there. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Any of that sound like a crucifixion to you? But that wasn't the Messiah they wanted. So here's how I want to close today, guys. Let's don't just point at the Jews and say, how could they reject Jesus because he didn't come the way they wanted him to? See, the bigger question isn't for us, for the Jews. It's for us. How many times do we get mad and reject God when He doesn't show up the way we want Him to? Guys, when God shows up in your life, whether it's through suffering or victory, our job is to stay faithful and keep pointing others to the Messiah. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the opportunity just to talk this through, God. Why the Jews rejected Jesus. And God, God, it's not for us to throw stones at them, but for us to honestly examine our own hearts and our own lives. That God, if you don't move in my life and do exactly what I want you to do, that I won't be the kind of person that walks away, that rejects you. But instead, I would identify with your son. And if Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, I want to spend my waking hours to seek and to save the lost. If Jesus came not to be served but to serve others, I want to spend my energy and my waking hours not being served but serving others. And ultimately, God, in this season, through this Christmas season, let us point others to you more than ever before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you guys. Y'all have a fantastic day. Thanks for listening to today's Bible study. For more information regarding Cottonwood Creek, go to cottonwoodcreek.org. And we hope you tune in next time for more episodes of Men's Bible Study.